Okay, I got a little got a little survey I'd like to take just to, just to survey the uh, the congregation today. How many of you have uh, Kansas City uh, winning the Super Bowl today? Let me look at the hands. Okay, how many have the Buffalo Bills winning the Super Bowl today? <laughs> Maybe next year. All right. How many got San Francisco? All right, we're pretty okay. We're, how many just don't care? You just how many just. <laughs> How many just say, I just want to watch the commercials and eat Doritos and queso? That sounds good right now. A little warm queso and chips. Um, big day today. Um, so, hope you have fun. Uh, we're starting a new series um, for this month, uh, jumping into February, called True. And how many know it's sometimes hard to find the truth sometimes, right? Is this... Is this true? Is what is what we believe actually true? Is it is it truth? And and I want to I want to spend the next couple of weeks digging into um, what is truth because we'll hear things like this in our world today. We'll hear things like what is true for you may not be true for me, or you may hear things like this: Don't place your morals or your beliefs on me. So the question is, is everybody right? Are all religions right? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. And I want to dig into this uh, topic of why we believe what we believe and why we believe that Jesus is the truth and how that truth uh, can change our lives. And we listen, I, there's a lot of statistics and uh, surveys that I've read about People, especially young people, going through their teenage years and then they go off into college and, and many turn away uh, from their belief, maybe something that, were, that they were raised in or maybe raised in, in church and then they go off into college or a secular university and then they're challenged for what they believe and then they abandon their faith because someone asked them a question about their faith that they don't know how to answer. They weren't challenged to answer. And so it is very important for me as a pastor, that we know why we believe what we believe. And I know some people are like, you know, pastor, I just believe it. God said it and I believe it and that's it. But guess what? There are people in the world that, that want to know why we believe what we believe. And I believe that we can give rational, reasonable answers for why we believe what we believe. And I believe Christianity has the best answer for our world today. And, and I believe that Jesus gives us the answer and what we see in the word of God can be verified and that we don't have to check our brains at the door when we come into church, that actually our faith is credible and it's reasonable. And, and I, want, I want to challenge you over uh, the next couple of weeks to really understand why we believe that Jesus is the truth, why we believe the words that he, say, has, he says are words of truth that can change our lives. And so um, we're going to look at a couple questions that, that people have or they may ask or questions that you may ask. And, and, that, and the question I'm going to dive into today, I'm just going to, we're going to dive in just face first and, and just full board this morning. Um, does everyone get to go to heaven? We're going to look at that topic today. Because if you were to ask people, um, are you going to go to heaven? Everybody, how many people, everybody wants to go to heaven, right? That, that's, a, that's a pretty good gig. Everybody wants to go to heaven. But does everybody go to heaven? Is, is heaven the default for everyone? Does it, does it really matter how I live my life? What, what happens right after the moment I die? 
And, and you may be here today, and you may be following Jesus for a short time or, or maybe for a long time, and you still have questions like, yeah, what, what, what does happen right after I die? And these are things I want to dive in today, because every culture in the world has tried to answer these questions. In fact, in the pyramids in Egypt, uh, they've actually found maps besides the bodies as guides to help them find the next world. And so if you look at our cultures around the world today, they have tried to answer these questions about what happens after we die. And, and what we've found in every culture uh, is that they have some belief in the afterlife, a belief that there is more than just this world. And I believe with all my heart that Christianity has the best answer for these questions. And, and I'm going to show you why um, I believe this. And so many will say, you know, just aren't all religions basically the same. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. And how can we say that Christianity is the only way? But the reality is all religions are not the same. The moment you go under the surface, we will see vast differences in why we believe Christianity is different and unique from every other uh, world religious belief. And here's why. I'll give you one answer, the reason why Christianity is different from every other world belief. It's Jesus. I know that's a little Sunday school answer for you, but it's Jesus. And we have to understand why Jesus is so unique. Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus wasn't, wasn't some just philosopher or good person or prophet that came. Jesus, in fact, was God who came to earth his, through his incarnation, fully God, fully man, who walked among us to do something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. You see, Jesus, the reason why Jesus is so unique and Christianity is so unique is that Jesus dealt with our biggest problem. And what, what, really, what was our biggest problem? It's not who's going to win the Super Bowl today. It's not will the Bills ever, ever make it back to the Super Bowl. That's not our biggest dilemma. Our biggest dilemma is our sin. And that's why when we look in our world today, we see the problems and the mess that we're in. Can we, can we all agree, can we get a consensus that our world's in a mess? I mean, it, it just is. And, that, and that's the result of sin. And, and Jesus dealt with our sin. Not, not us trying to deal with our sin, because we can't overcome our sin in our own strength. So Jesus does something that we can't do for ourselves. It's, and, and it's by this wonderful grace, you have this perfect God in every way who is perfectly holy, who comes to deal with our sin. And it's by God's grace that we're given the gift of eternal life through Jesus, not by our works. And so what makes Christianity so unique from every other uh, world belief is grace. Grace is what makes Christianity unique from every other religious system. And here's why. Here's why. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And so what God does for us, none of us here in this world deserve God's grace. He's perfect, we are not. We've fallen short of his perfection and his holiness. So we have this dilemma of sin in our lives that we try to overcome by us, by us doing better works, by us trying to feel good about ourselves, by us trying to feel righteous about what we do. And, but, but what the word of God says is that our righteousness will always fall short of God's perfection. And so what God does is he gives us this gift of grace, something that we don't deserve, and then he gives us mercy, and it's not getting what we do deserve. How many, how many of us know 
we deserve death because of our sin. And listen, the moment you come to that realization in your life, it will change everything for you. The moment you realize that God is giving you something that you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you do deserve, it changes your whole life because now you realize what Jesus truly has done for us. See, every other religious system is based on works, not grace alone for salvation. And so what Jesus does is he comes, he shows us the way to the Father. He's perfect in every way. He dies on the cross for our sins, becomes our substitute, and then proves his divinity through the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, our belief system would be false. The resurrection changes everything, that Jesus indeed is who he says he is. That's why Jesus could claim exclusivity when he said in John 14, 6, Jesus answered them and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through me. So there's the exclusivity of Jesus saying, there's not another way. You can't go through Buddha or Confucius or any other way. Jesus, this is his words. This is not what I believe This is what Jesus taught because he was perfect and he was God. And he said, the only way to the father is through me because I am truth and and I I am life and I am the way. Yet at the same time, Jesus is all inclusive in who comes to him. And and most of us know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, look at your neighbor and say, I'm whoever. Look at him. I'm a whoever, right? You're a whoever. And, and whoever believes him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. So here we see the exclusivity of Jesus in saying, I'm the only way. And then he's, he's all-inclusive by saying, anyone who comes to me, I don't care what your background is. I don't care any, anything about that. Whoever comes to me, I will show you my grace. And you can find eternal life. So here's the thing. Either Jesus is or he isn't who he says he is. We, we can't make up stories about Jesus and say, well, he was just a good man. Well, he was a good man, but he was more than that. We can't just say, well, he, he came and he did nice things for people and he healed people and he was just a prophet. Well, he did those things, but yet he was more than that. Jesus claimed exclusivity, the only way to the Father. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the I Am. And that's the reason why he was sent to the cross. Because to say those words would be blasphemous. And that's why he was sent. He was sent for claiming to be God the only way. So the common factor for those who gain heaven is one thing. Jesus. That's the common factor for those who gain heaven is Jesus. And so one of the most questions that I get asked uh, many times is people will ask, well, pastor, what happens right after we die? At that moment, what happens? Do we sleep? Are we just in this limbo land? What happens? And so I want to talk about this truth today, what happens after we die. Because if Jesus says, I'm the only way, then we have to understand who Jesus is and why he's the only one that can grant eternal life because he is God. He's not just some man and he's the only one that can grant eternal life. I can't grant eternal life through my good works because we understand they've fallen short of God's perfection. So I'm going to talk about this truth today. What happens after we die? What happens after those who know Christ and follow him as their savior? What happens to them right after they die? And what happens to those who haven't? committed their lives to Jesus, 
who haven't confessed Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And then what I want to do is, if we understand that truth that Jesus has changed our lives, and we understand the truth that we've gained eternal life, then how is that translating into the way I live my life every single day? That's where the truth becomes reality in the way I live my life every single day. So I want to hit on that point too. And so the first reality check that we need to understand about our lives is that, guess what? We all die. I know we don't like to talk about it. Uh, I know it's not a a great topic of conversation. Um, But let me get this one point clear. We will die someday, won't we? We will. We're going to die. And we don't like to hear that. You know, and, and just aren't you so glad you came to church today? This is just, just so wonderful, Pastor. I feel so uplifted, but it's going to get better. Just hold on. I want you to know that the, I just Googled it today that the mortality rate in the United States is 100%. It just is. It's, it's one in one person will die one day. It's just, um, we don't like to talk about it, but, but thinking about death isn't, isn't fun. Um, if you ever just think about, you know, it would be nice if I die, if I just fell asleep and then I just woke up in heaven. Wouldn't that be nice? You ever think about that? Like I, the, the movie's Jaws just ruined the ocean for me, right? Because you, how many of you are like me? After you saw that movie, you're like, I don't ever want to go in the ocean again. Um, because you're thinking that I don't want to die from a shark attack, right? Did you ever... Is anybody weird like me? You ever think about that? You're just like, you get into a plane, you're like, gosh, I hope this plane isn't going down, right? You know, you just, you think, I mean, and those aren't fun things to think about, but, but I, I want to relieve your mind today. I want to just give you peace today for those of you that worry about uh, jaws attacking you in the ocean or whatever. I just want to ease your mind today and give you some clear facts here today, okay? Are you ready? You are more likely to die by getting struck in the head by a coconut than you are by getting eaten by a shark. Does that make you feel better? Okay, so more like that by getting hit by... These are, true, these are true statistics. Also, you are more likely to die by getting your head stuck in a vending machine than you are to get a shark attack. These are, these are true statistics. We all know everything on the internet's true, right? So these are true statistics, okay? I hope that makes everybody feel better. So let's get a clear understanding of what happens after we die. Because some people think, well, do, you know, I was kind of brought up in a tradition where, you know, you get a second chance after you die. Or can, can people pray for me? Like, do I go in this limbo purgatory thing? And then, you know, if I, I didn't do everything correctly down here, then someone can pray for me so that I, that I can get into heaven. And, and there's nowhere that the Bible talks about that. What about reincarnation? You know, what, what about these things? Well, let me give you a passage of scripture that speaks to the truth of what happens after we die. Hebrews nine twenty seven and 28 says, just as people are destined to die, what? Once, okay? And after that, to face judgment. Okay, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. He says, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So this is important for us to understand. What this passage does is it repudiates any notion of reincarnation or second chances after we die. Um, it's, we die, so our, our, our 
the chance for salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Why we live, everything we do now is imperative to what happens after we die. So the first time Jesus came was to deal with our sin issue. The second time we see that that Jesus is going to bring salvation for those who wait for him. But Jesus will also bring judgment with him. We will be judged for what we know. Every single person, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we will give an account for how we lived our lives. We will give an account. So what that passage says, what the Hebrew writer is saying is every single one of us, whether you're a believer in Christ or not, will have to give an account for how we lived our lives. Were we good stewards with the breath and the life that God has given us? So for those who are followers of Christ, they will be saved from eternal judgment. And so this is what the Hebrew writer is saying. There's going to be judgment for those who do not know Christ. And the judgment passes over those who are followers of Christ because they are in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. So we no longer face the judgment of God because of our sins. When you trust Jesus by faith, you're trusting what he did for you on the cross. Jesus took the wrath of God and our sin on the cross. So he became our substitute. So now we're set free of the penalty that sin leaves behind. We're no longer subject to that. And so we are free. And and we're no longer guilty because of our sin. Now, does that mean that we'll still make mistakes? Of course we will. But we have an advocate in Christ Jesus that we can go to that forgives us of our sins. Our position now before God is one of innocence. Isn't that good? And that's the wonderful thing about following Christ is that there's that forgiveness and that freedom that we have that our sins have been forgiven. Now, let's talk about those who die without Christ. Um, and for those, the moment they die without Christ, they, they go to a, a, a waiting place, a place of, of torment, Jesus talks about, waiting for their final judgment. And what the Word of God talks about for those who die without Christ, they talk about this final judgment place, and, and they talk about a place called the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, the book of Revelation gives us a clear picture of what happens at this great white judgment seat for those who die without a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So let me read that for you in Revelation chapter 20. John the Apostle is given this vision of the end times and what's going to eventually take place in the end times. Um, And this is what he says. This is the vision that, that Jesus gives him, that God gives him. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, And him who was seated on it, and the earth and the heavens uh, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, put a note, put just a pin right there. We're going to talk about who are the great and the small. And they were standing before the throne, and the books were open, another book was open, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. No one will escape the judgment of God. No one. Period. Capiche? Okay, so I just want to make sure we got that that clear. I want want us to look at this dead and small. What does does the dead and, and small mean here? Now, it's a reminder to us that those that stand before this great white throne judgment um, will be people of all classes, both people in the church 
right? Who, who, who maybe claimed to be followers of Jesus, but really weren't those in the church and even those in the world who, who just absolutely just denied God and Jesus altogether. For those that died without trusting Christ or those that had a knowledge about God or, or just maybe a religious experience but did not have a genuine saving relationship with Christ, those are the ones that are waiting their final judgment. So right now they're in this place of, of torment, eventually waiting their final judgment. And after the final judgment, there's going to be this, uh, this sea of fire that they're going to be cast into with the devil and his angels. And some people would say, well, you know, did, did, did God create hell for just to be mean and for people to go to? He created hell for the devil and his angels, but those who also did not follow, did not follow him. So God gives us a chance while we're living. God has given us everything we need. And so when some people say, well, that's not fair. God's not fair. He's fair in every way. He's perfectly just. Yes, we all want the loving God, don't we? But I want you to understand too that God is a just God. And in order for God to be a just God, he must judge our sin. That's why the death of Christ was so gruesome and so brutal because it symbolizes our sin. God did everything possible to reach us and to redeem us through his son, Jesus. And so, and so um, you're going to have the great and small. And what, what John is saying there is it's not... It's not, it's so much more than just going to church or going to church once in a while. The great and small can be those that were Bible scholars. Those who had great knowledge of God, but didn't have a saving knowledge of Jesus. It could be pastors. Um, It's not what you know, it's who you know. It's, 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 did you truly follow me? And, And these words by Jesus just bother me greatly. They just, they just bother me. And how many you know, you know, we, we tend not to, you know, put these verses on our Instagram. You know, we tend not to put these verses on our social media site <laughs> because these are hard verses. And, and here's, the th- here's the thing that these verses are hard for a reason because God wants us to see the reality of our lives and the rea- reality of our sins and the reality of what Jesus actually did for us. So sometimes these words are hard, but they're meant to be hard so they can change our hearts and see exactly what Jesus truly did for you and I through his sacrifice. And these words bother me because Jesus tells us what happens to these religious people when they stand before Jesus, these so-called religious people. And Jesus, it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 7. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? You know, that's, a, that's pretty big. Um, didn't we drive out demons in your name and perform miracles? And then Jesus says to them very plainly, he says, I never knew you. That word there, knew, is intimately. I didn't know you intimately. You did these things in my name, but you didn't know me intimately. It reminds me of a time my dad and I were walking our property in Bristol Hills. My grandparents owned like 80 acres and we had posted signs and right on the posted sign. It said, my grandfather's name was Anthony Gerace. No trespassing, no hunting, uh, will be shot on premises if we could, you know, and, um, 
And so there's these guys and they were hunting and my dad went up to them and we're on the main road and my dad said, can I, can I help you with something? He goes, oh, we're hunting. And he goes, oh yeah, well, who are you? And they said, well, we know Anthony Gerace. Oh, you do? What does he look like? How old is he? When did you get permission? So my dad started grilling. And they did. All they did was look at the sign. All they knew was his name. They didn't know my grandfather. So my dad took out his 9mm Glock and said, you better get stepping. No, I'm just teasing. These guys got in their car and went away. We didn't. My grandfather didn't know them. They knew his name, but they didn't know him. How many people, listen, just follow me for a second. How many people at Judgment Day will say the same thing? Well, I knew your name, but Jesus, but I never knew you. I never knew you intimately. Dr. David Jeremiah says, contrary to popular opinion, believing in your chosen truth doesn't make it true. Just because you believe it's true doesn't necessarily make it true. If I'm going to believe in a truth, I want to believe in the evidence, and Jesus holds that evidence for us through his resurrection. Because everything that Jesus said, he did. And so we can trust him with our lives. So what about those who believe in Christ and have done his will? So we know that those who have not done his will, there's judgment waiting for them, and then eventually the place of hell is total separation from God. But what about um, those who believe in Christ and have done his will? What happens to them? One minute after you die, what happens? Pastor, what happens the minute after we die? What happens? Um, and, and this is what we know for sure. What we know for sure is that we will be taken into the presence of Christ. There's no soul sleep or place of unconsciousness. Okay, what we know from Scripture, I'm going to give you four passages here that show that the moment we die in Christ, we are in his presence. Let me give you a couple. Let me give you four passages here real quickly. Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul writes this because uh, the church in Corinth had some confusion about what happens after we die. So he wants to make it very clear to them of what happens. He goes, for we know that if this earthly tent, and he calls our bodies tents. You know why he calls our bodies tents? Because this isn't a permanent living place. Those of you that camp, God bless you, especially those of you that, that um, camp in tents, have fun. I know some of you do that glam camping. You got the nice campers and you got air conditioning in there and hot tubs and everything else. That ain't camping. Don't, don't, you ain't fooling me. You ain't fooling me. Uh, uh, but he calls our, our, our bodies tents. These, these aren't permanent dwelling places. He goes, once this tent is destroyed when we die, we'll have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So we know that one day we will have this new resurrected body that will take on immortality. That which was mortal, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, will take on immortality. At the last trumpet sound, when that trumpet sounds in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed, Paul said. And that which was corrupted, our body, how many know our bodies are, we're getting older, are we? No matter how much we try, our knees ache, our backs ache, we need hip replacements, knee replacements. For those of you that are younger, you just wait. You think you're cocky now, you just wait. It only goes downhill. That's why these bodies are tense, right? Can I get an amen? Amen. 
So we're waiting for that resurrected body. And that's what Paul says. We have that hope that we will be changed. God is building for us an eternal house, a permanent dwelling place. Go down a little further, uh, verses 6 through 9. It says, says, therefore, we are always confident, and we know that as long as we are at home in this body, in these tents, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith and not by sight. Listen to this. He says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body at to be at home with who? The Lord. It's the moment we die, we go in the presence of the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in this tent, in this body, or away from it. And then Paul goes on to say to the church in Philippi, he says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to to depart and be with who? And be with Christ. Which Which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And I love the story of Jesus with the two thieves and the, and the one thief turns to Jesus and, and realizes that Jesus shouldn't be up on the cross. They should be. And, and Jesus answered this one thief as he's dying on the cross. He said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, the moment you die, you will be with me in paradise. So we will be free from sin and the effects of sin. We will be pure and we will be righteous, completely righteous before the Lord. So our souls will be with Christ, waiting for our new resurrected bodies. So when we die, we're waiting for that, that day when Christ will return, and we will have that resurrected body one day, which I will be six foot eight and slam dunk a basketball. That's just my, that's my hope. I'm probably going to be four foot two and uh, be good at bocce. I don't know. So... We're waiting for those resurrected bodies. And so we will never have to worry about sickness and disease and pain anymore. And, and I heard a pastor say it this way. And, and I think this is, this is where we need to take the truth of the hope that we have for us that have put our faith in Christ. That hope should change the way we live every single day. I, I don't, listen, I don't want our hope in heaven, which should be the driving force for everything we do, I don't want that hope for heaven to, to cause us to overlook what our responsibility is here on earth. And Jesus, it's interesting, every time the, the disciples tried to ask Jesus about end times, Jesus seemed to turn it back to evangelism. <laughs> you know, I, I think sometimes we get so caught up in end time prophecy and what's going to happen and how, and we go to the conferences. And listen, I'm not saying any of that stuff is bad or we shouldn't understand that, but, but let's be honest. The first five minutes in heaven, Jesus is going to straighten out all our end time charts, okay? Because we don't know. We know Jesus is going to return and there's many different ideas about when and who and where and how all these things. And I have my opinions about that and, 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 and what I believe. And then someone else will come along and say, well, you're wrong here, whatever. My way's right, your way's wrong. But anyways, who cares, right? But at the end of the day, what are we doing today with what we know about heaven? How, how has that changed our life? And I heard a pastor say it this way that I thought was so good. He goes, what you believe about eternity will determine how you live today. What you believe, not, not if you've got all your end-time prophecy charts down. Who cares? Fun to study. But I've seen so many people get so caught up in that that they forget about living for Christ today. That Christ calls us to reach the lost today. And so let, let, let not us get so captivated by all these things. And we see the signs around us, don't we? We know that Christ 
return is, is imminent and we need to be prepared for that every single day of the Lord's return and it should change the way we live today. That's, that statement bothers me um, because I have to remind myself, am I living my life with eternity in mind? And, and let me give you the reason why we need to be bothered by that statement. Because Paul shares with those who follow Christ and, and will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So now we've talked about those that haven't followed Christ and they're awaiting their judgment, the white throne judgment. But we also, followers of Christ, will stand before a judgment seat. Now, this judgment seat is not going to be a judgment of our salvation, but it will be a judgment of our works and what we've done with what we've known and how we've lived our life. Listen to what Paul says. Once again, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, here's, here's what he says. He, let, let, me, let me give you a picture here, because Paul's painting a picture um, for the Corinthian church. The Greek word for judgment seat is this word bima. Now, let me, let me give you understanding of, of what bima means. Bima was a tribunal bench. And it basically, it, 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 I want you to get a, a picture of it looking like this. The picture here is taken from a, a, a large, maybe Olympic area um, venue where there would be a sizable elevated seat where a judge of the contest would deliver rewards to the athletic participants. And at the bench or at the Bema seat, successful competitors would receive their crowns. Many times it was a laurel crown, a type of wreath, or rewards for their competition. And so that's the picture that Paul is giving, giving to us of this Bema seat. So we're not judged for our salvation at, at the Bema seat, but we're going to be rewarded for the things that we have done for Christ. We will receive rewards, not for our glory, but for Christ's glory, for what we've done. Now, understanding this should change the way we live our lives today. I don't, I don't earn my salvation, but we are created, Paul says, to do good works in Christ, which we will be rewarded for. And so we have to remind ourselves that we should never grow weary in doing good. So the question we need to ask ourselves continually is how, I'm, how am I serving Christ with my time, my talents, and my treasure? Am I living my life with eternity in mind, knowing that I'll be judged and rewarded for what I've done in Christ? Now, I, I, don't, I don't want this to be a guilt thing or a condemning thing where I'm like, I've got to do work, I've got to do more works. It's an accountability thing. The more, listen to me, this is so important. Listen to me. The more grace that's poured out into our life, the more gratitude should be flowing from our lives and the way we live our lives. Not that I'm trying to earn God's love through my performance. That never works. That's an empty pit that can never be filled. God's love for us is unconditional. But the more God pours his grace and his mercy into us and we feel God's forgiveness, it should transform our lives into the way we live our lives and the way we serve others, the way we give. That grace should propel us to do these works in Jesus' name. Not out of guilt or compulsion, but out of our love for what Christ has poured into us. Does that, does that make sense? Everybody with me? 
Four of you? Okay, that's good. Okay. See, here, here's, here's what I want you to know. That, that Jesus does see the people that we've prayed for. The little children that you may have taught. The time you were helping others. Jesus sees this. It's not going to go unnoticed. He will see when you sacrificially gave the neighbor that you helped for the millionth time. That same neighbor that drives you nuts, but you did it anyways because you knew that the love of Christ compelled you to do that. See, once again, our works do not save us, but it should compel us. The love of Christ should compel us to serve the world, to serve those who are unservable or unlovable. Those are the things that God sees, the things that go unnoticed, the things that we're not receiving the accolades for. Those are the things that Jesus sees. How, how is my heart in those areas of the things that aren't seen? Am I motivated? Not because of I'm going to get a pat on the back or someone's going to say, add a boy. But am I doing it out of my motivation for the grace and the love of Christ? Am I being a good steward with all that Christ has given us? See, we have a responsibility with that grace that has been given to us and the way we live it out in our lives and the way we give and the way we serve and the way we share with others. And here, I'm just going to, I'll use me as an example. And here's one thing that I don't like about myself and, and I get upset at times. I get so caught up in going from A to B. And I get, I get so busy living my life that I forget that my life, everything about my life, should be lived under the Lord. You know, I, I, I tease about getting irritated with people on the road, but I do get impatient. And it's not a good quality. I don't like that. Because I'm like, Lord, if I'm stopped in traffic, use this for whatever you're going to use it. Teach me patience if you have to teach me patience. But I get so caught up in going from A to B that I forget that I'm actually living my life I need to be living my life with eternity in mind. And when I'm out and about, I need to be more sensitive to those around me, my neighbors, not forgetting to pray for them, because I forget to do that at times. And I need to work on that. I forget that there's a heaven waiting for those that have put their hope in Christ. And if that reality is so true in my life, then it, it, it needs to consume the way I live my life each and every day. And the more time I spend alone with Christ and his word, isn't it amazing how God gently reminds us to do it in his name, to keep eternity in mind? I must remind myself of that each and every day. And, and most of the things that I get so worked up about and worried about really don't matter in the scope of eternity, do they? See, it's what is done for Christ that truly matters. And I think what happens is when we, when we do not live our lives with the scope of eternity in mind, it does change the way we live our lives. Because how many know that life can just beat us, beat you up? And how many of you are like me, just anxiety and worry can consume you. And, and it, it, it dims the hope that we have of eternity. That, like what Paul said, our trials are just momentary. They're just a blip on the radar. 
But for me, the thing I got to work on is I can't allow those things to consume my heart because then my life gets foggy and I can't, I can't see Jesus like I need to. And then I get consumed with those things and then worry and the peace of Christ um, just, it, it, it leaves my heart, it leaves my life. And when we live our lives with the hope of eternity in mind, it's going to change the way we live because we know that, God, you're working all these things out. You're working them out for good. And I got to keep reminding myself of that. That doesn't mean that we don't feel sadness or we don't go through times of trial or hurt. But the difference is we have a hope that's beyond any of our trials or circumstances. That our hope one day is that we will be with Jesus. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me, trust also in God. For in my Father's house are what? Many mansions, many rooms, many dwelling places. So don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you to be with me. One time my dad said, Barden, can you imagine Jesus has been away for 2,000 years? Can you imagine what that place looks like? I go, just a little fishing shack next to a nice trout stream. That's all I ask. That's all I want, right? But it's got to be beautiful. Heaven is beautiful. There was this story that I heard um, about a swimmer. Her name was Florence Chadwick, and she was the first woman to swim the English Channel in 1952, which is about 21 miles. Now, I was a swimmer. I can't even imagine swimming 21 miles. That's insane. In, in cold water, I did one, like it was this, it was, a, it was a big athletic competition where somebody canoed, it was in Skinny Atlas Lake when I was a teenager. I had to swim like a mile and then my cousin Kaya or a canoed and then a runner and then a bicyclist. And we all took, it was like tag team. And I got hypothermia in Skinny Atlas Lake. You know, I mean, it was just, I don't know how she did. It was just, it was crazy. And um, so she wanted to swim the 20-mile distance between Catalina Island to the main coast of California. And uh, so that was going to be her next thing. And so she was in the water for 15 hours swimming. And her mom was in the boat, but there was this huge fog, and they, she could barely see even the boat in front of her as she was swimming. And she swam for 15 hours, and she was telling her mom, Mom, I, I can't do it. I just can't. I can't do it. And her mom says, well, you're, I know you're getting close. So just, she said, I can't do it. So they pulled her out of the water. But they found out that she was less than a mile from the shore. She swam 15, 15 hours, and she was less than a mile. And it was funny, in an interview, a news conference, um, she was quoted by saying this, uh, All I could see was the fog. She was, I think... I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Now, two months later, she tried it again. Same thing happened. Pea soup fog. Whole way. But she made it. She did the whole 20 miles from Catalina Island to California. Um, this was the difference. Uh, she said to herself, she goes, the reason why I made it, the reason I didn't stop is she says, I had this mental image in my mind of the shoreline. 
think the reason why we struggle so much in our lives is we don't have that mental image of Jesus on the shoreline saying, you guys can make it. It's great here. Do you realize there's a cloud of witnesses, the Hebrew writer says, that have gone before us. And if they were to speak to us, they would, they would be cheering us on. Saying, you can make it. Listen to your trials. And that's why the Hebrew writer wrote that, because the Hebrew Christians were going through persecution. They were wanting to walk away from the Lord. They were struggling because of persecution. But he said, there's this great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, that have made it, and you can make it too. And if you want to look at that like an Olympic venue of a marathon runner when they're running after they do the marathon and they're running the Olympic stadium and you got people in the crowd and they're just cheering on, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the world, we, how are we living our lives in the scope of eternity today? It will change the way you live your lives today. And some of you, you may feel like, yeah, pastor, I feel like I am in a fog right now. And I have to admit, I'm discouraged. And I've kind of lost my perspective of heaven and the hope that I ultimately have. You may be here and you've not relinquished your life to Jesus, and I would encourage you to do that. Well, it's still today. And for some of you here today that you just feel overwhelmed because of uh, the, the issues in your life, and you just feel clouded over and you're in a fog, I want to pray for you to encourage you is not to lose your hope in heaven, that Jesus is on the shoreline. He's saying, you can do it. I, you can make it. Don't give up. Don't let this world discourage you to the point that you forget where your eternity is. And that's where our hope is. Isn't it wonderful that, that Jesus wants us to get to a point in our life where we're like, you know what? It really doesn't matter what happens in this world. I've got Jesus. I've got Jesus. It doesn't matter what happens. At the end of the day, we've got Jesus. You have Jesus, he makes all the difference. So Father God, as we bow our hearts before you today and as we just close this time, Lord, I, I thank you for your word and I just, Lord, as we're just uh, bowing our hearts before you, I pray for those that maybe have not made that commitment to you. Lord, I thank you that, that they can do that at any time, that anyone that calls on your name, they'll be saved. And I pray that they would make that decision for you, Jesus. I pray for those here today that are just struggling and they just feel like they're in a cloud today and the uh, discouragement has set in their life and, and they, uh, they feel like just jumping in the boat and, and just giving up. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them through these words, that Jesus, you that you give us that peace that we need, that you, uh, that you tell us not to allow our hearts to be troubled because you are preparing a place for us. Help us to put our hope in the, in the concrete reality and the truth that Jesus overcame this world for us. And heaven waits for those who have put their trust in you. So Lord, I pray that you would do your work in all of our hearts that there would be a joy in our hearts, even in the midst of our difficult circumstances, that we have Jesus. And because of that, we have heaven. We love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen.